Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts and minds. Lord Jesus, we do welcome you here by your Spirit. We wouldn't seek your truth if it wasn't for the work of your Spirit. We ask that your Holy Spirit might speak to us through your word, that we might be convicted, that we might live lives in obedience to it. Obedience to it. We give you thanks, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we will read Micah from the Old Testament, Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Hear God's word. But you, O Bethlehem of Erath, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of his name, the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. And when the Assyrians comes to our land and treads in our palaces, and we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. Chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. It may be found on page 1026 of your Red Pew Bible, Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. But before I read God's word and begin to preach God's word, let's call upon his Holy Spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you so much that you inspired Matthew to put pen to paper to tell us a story of the birth of Jesus and how wise men came from east to worship him. Lord, I pray that as you read this familiar story that you might speak to us, that we might hear from you that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Matthew chapter two, beginning with verse one. Listen to God's word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. I want to pause there just for a moment. What do we really know about these wise men? I received an email today from an old friend from seminary. It showed me a picture of it said the three wiser women who show up after the wise men bringing blankets, diapers, and formula. (laughs) Much better gifts than gold, frankincense, and myrrh for a little boy, right? Who are these wise men exactly? We're not told a lot, but we're told that they have come from the east. In fact, the Greek word for wise men here is magos, or uh, sorry, magos, magos, or uh, some English translations like the New American Standard Version translated as magi. Magos, we get the English word magic from magos. The magi were people who worshiped creation rather than the creator. And the only, only other time we see the word magos in the New Testament is actually in the book of Acts chapter 13 when Luke is describing Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. In Acts 13 verse 6, we read this, Paul and Barnabas came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. 
If you keep reading uh, Acts 13, you'll see that Bar-Jesus was not a good man. In fact, uh, Paul has to blind him because he's trying to prevent Paul from preaching the gospel. And so Paul curses him and blinds him. It's a pretty powerful scene. But the magi or the magicians were not considered followers of Yahweh because they worshiped creation rather, rather than the creator. In fact, it's interesting, as uh, some scholars say, that the more appropriate uh, translation of magos would probably be astrologer because that's really what they were. They were ones who studied the stars and they tried to interpret the stars and allow the stars to lead them. They were worshiping nature, not the creator. In fact, we know that this is not what God wants at all because in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19, Moses warns the people and says, beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. God knew that humanity might be tempted to worship the stars or the sun or the moon, And so God warns them not to do this. We are called to worship the creator, the one true God. But the magi, these magicians, these astrologers were polytheists. They believed in many gods. And and most of their gods in some way were connected to creation. They were very much like uh, segments of the New Age movement that we have today. People who look to, to nature and worship nature and Mother Earth rather than worshiping the one true God. Yes, all of Israel knew that they were called to worship Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And so as they looked at the Magi, these are people who are very far from God. Yet God in his amazing grace, these Magi who are seeking after God, looking to the stars, God leads them to Jerusalem so they might find out where the true king, the newborn king of the Jews has been born. Now if you were here on Sunday, you know that we made quite a big deal about the fact that in Luke chapter 1, Mary is told while she's still just a virgin teenage girl that she's going to miraculously give birth to a baby boy and and he will become a great king and and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And, And we talked about the fact that when she's told this, she's actually living in Nazareth. But as Murray just pointed out in Micah chapter five, verse two, the Messiah, the Savior, the King of the Jews is to be born in Bethlehem. Well, who all remembers how far it is from Nazareth to Bethlehem, just from Sunday? Anybody remember? 90 miles, you guys are paying attention, well done, good job, gold star. 90 miles, can you imagine a pregnant woman traveling 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem by foot or donkey, that's like walking from here to Dalhart, who would want to do that, right? No offense to anyone from Dalhart, great town, but don't want to walk it, especially if I'm pregnant, right? And I've never been pregnant, but my wife tells me that would be no good, right? And yet Mary did it, Mary traveled the 90 miles, Well, these magi are most likely from Babylon or perhaps Persia. Think modern-day Iraq or Iran. They traveled over 900 miles just to get to Jerusalem to find out where the newborn king of the Jews was to be born. What compelled these magi, these students of the stars, these wise men, to travel so many miles for so many days. It would have taken them months to walk or to ride even by camel or donkey 900 miles. What would lead them to take so much time and walk so far to worship someone they've never even seen, to worship this newborn king of the Jews? How far are we willing to travel to worship Jesus today? 
Now, I know some of you have probably traveled from out of town. I know, see the girls from Austin, you know, and I know that we've got uh, folks who have come from New York State here to be here. Uh, Tommy Cambridge was at the four o'clock. He lives in New York. Many of you have traveled a long way, and I'm grateful that you have. And, but what about a typical Sunday morning? How far are you willing to travel and go to worship Jesus? Now, I know in our church, we have people who actually travel all the way from Canyon. Uh, that's a good 20 minutes. Or some people from Bushland, you know, that could be 20 or 30 minutes, depending on where you live. You know, people are willing to travel to, to worship Jesus. My family, we actually live in Puckett, which is near Amarillo High. It's really not a big deal, 15 minutes or so by car. Now, the journey is not the challenge. The challenge is the preparation. In fact, I've got a little video to show with you this evening to kind of talk about why sometimes it can be hard to get to church on time. and then we'll get going. No. Okay. Hey, what? you just lay out their clothes because it takes me five minutes. Honey, That's perfect. seriously. Jack. Well, we're already late for church. Hey, you Brian. Get stuff dressed. Did you pick up my stuff from the dry cleaners? Uh, ooh. <sighs> Make it. Okay, Jack, I'm gonna make you waffles. Not a sandwich. Yes, but you gotta make it by yourself. Jack. Okay. This is all I could find and the zipper's broken. All right, I'll go grab a safety pin. I got the high score! <sighs> Anna, what are you doing? Daddy, I'm painting your fingernails. Well, that's great, sweetie, but go get dressed. I need you to stay still. Okay, honey. Anna! Come on, let's go! Okay, everybody needs to eat. Here you go. I need here you go. Okay, here you go. I forgot my shoes. Oh. Honey, we gotta go no. back. I wanna take off my shoes. Nobody's taking off their shoes. And I want everybody to understand that we're what? <gasps> We made it. Yep.
Amen. Anybody can relate to that, huh? Getting ready early in the morning with kids. I love that quote at the end. Nobody has it all together, including the family in front of you. One of the good things about First Presbyterian Church is that nobody is perfect and everybody is welcome. So we're so glad that you're here this evening, no matter what it took to, to get here. In fact, this idea that everyone is welcome, it really comes from Jesus. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 28 to 30, he says, Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus invites all of us to come to him, no matter where we are, no matter what challenges we're going through, to come to him just as we are. Yes, in the church, everyone is welcome, everyone is invited, and nobody is perfect. And if that's the case, then why is it on any given Sunday there aren't more people in worship? Did you know that the average worship attendance in America has been steadily declining over the last several years? In 2017, Gallup did a nationwide survey and discovered that only 38% of Americans attend worship weekly, though 65% of Americans say that they are Christian. And of course, as followers of Christ, uh, we know that what the Bible says in the Ten Commandments, that we should honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so there's uh, six days for work, but on the seventh day is a day of rest, of holy rest when we should gather in worship of God. But it was interesting, there was actually another study done by Outreach Magazine because well, people kind of have what they call the halo effect. If you interview me and ask me, oh yeah, I go to worship weekly, but that may not be the case. This Outreach Magazine survey did a study of two, over 200,000 churches and based on actual worship attendance that showed up in those churches, they found that weekly worship attendance in our country was closer to 20%. People may join and affiliate with the church. They may consider themselves members, but they may not really go to worship that often. Our church is actually a perfect example of this. We have a, a membership of about 1,000 people, but any given Sunday, we have about 400 people in worship. Where is everybody when they're not here on Sunday? I know a lot of us go out of town, you know, we go on vacation, and with the economy being good, you know, there's opportunities to do some more travel than maybe normal, or maybe we're involved with kids' sports, and that takes us out of town every now and then, but, but when we're out of town, do we make an effort on Sunday to find a place of worship? A couple years ago, my wife and I went with our kids to Northampton, Massachusetts to visit my Uncle Bob who lives there. And, and when we were there, we were going to be there on a Sunday. And so we went to our denomination's webpage, eco-pres.org, and we looked up to see, are there any Presbyterian churches in our denomination near Northampton, Massachusetts? And there was actually one in Connecticut. It was only like 20 minutes away because, you know, New England's kind of small, right? Compared to Texas, at least, right? And uh, it was 20 minutes away. And so we went to this Calvary church and they gave me a coffee mug for coming. It was great, you know? And, and like I said, we've got a tumbler for you, though. We're better, right? We've got bigger. <laughs> you can spill this, but we will make sure you stay safe and clean with this tumbler. Yes, please pick one up in the Great Hall at the Welcome Center after the service. Now, this is last summer, we were in Colorado Springs, and we had an opportunity to worship at First Pres Colorado Springs, and, and we'll be in San Antonio soon, and, and we always try to worship at First Pres San Antonio. There are a lot of great churches, no matter what community you go to. When you go on vacation, do you try to find a place of, of worship? What efforts are you willing to make to make sure you worship Jesus every Sunday? Because as we look at our text this morning, these pagan magi, magi raised in a foreign land worshiping foreign gods were willing to travel over 900 miles over months to come and worship the baby Jesus. 
What was it that compelled them to travel such a far distance to worship this child? To find out, let's keep reading our text this evening. Matthew chapter 2, picking up with verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Three very appropriate gifts for a king. After all, gold, like now, is one of the most precious metals that they knew of. And so if you wanted to give an expensive, a, a nice gift to someone special, gold would be the metal to give. And so gold was the perfect gift to give to Jesus because Jesus is the king of kings. Frankincense was another wonderful gift. Frankincense was a fragrant sap that came from trees that would often be burned with, as a part of an incense by a priest in the worship of God. And of course, we know from Hebrews chapters four and five that Jesus is now our, our great high priest who has offered the perfect sacrifice when he offered himself as the sacrifice for all of our sins together. Yes, gold and frankincense, wonderful gifts. And of course, so is myrrh. Myrrh was a fragrant resin that would be used to embalm a body. The next time the word myrrh shows up in the New Testament, it's in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 39. We read that Nicodemus brought myrrh and aloes to anoint Jesus' body after he had been crucified. Gold and frankincense and myrrh, very appropriate gifts to give to this young boy, Jesus, the newborn king of the Jews. These were great gifts for Jesus. In fact, uh, they were wonderful. there's a wonderful painting I'd like to share with you that helps demonstrate what wonderfully fine, expensive gifts these are. You may not be able to read the caption, but here's what it says. Just to be clear, perfectly clear, these gifts are for your birthday and Christmas. <laughs> these expensive gifts are going to last for birthday and Christmas. So ironically, Christmas is Jesus' birthday, so perfect gifts for Jesus. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, great gifts But the greatest gift that the Magi gave that evening wasn't the gold, it wasn't the frankincense, and it wasn't the myrrh. The greatest gift that they gave to Jesus is found in the first sentence of verse 11. Let's look at that again. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down 
and worshiped him. The Greek word for worship him literally means to prostrate oneself, to to lay down, to express an attitude or gesture of one's complete dependence on or submission to a high authority. Worship with just a bowing of the head. No, these, these grown men, these wealthy men, these wise men got on their hands and knees and they worshiped this child, this newborn child. What was it that compelled them? These wise men, these star searchers, these men to travel so many miles and then to to prostrate themselves before this young child to worship this newborn king of the Jews. What was it that compelled them to worship him with such fervor? Well, as pagan magi, wise men living in the east, they had spent most of their lives worshiping false gods with false idols. They had worshiped creation rather than the creator. And ultimately, they found that worship to be empty. They found it to be wanting. You see, if these magi had really had peace, if they had shalom that we talked about on December 1st, if they had that sense of wholeness and salvation that comes with worshiping the one true God, they wouldn't need to travel 900 miles. No, they had a, a great level of discontentment. They knew that what they had been worshiping wasn't the true God. And most likely, there were Jews living, whether it be in Persia or in Babylon, who were living there because they had been sent there by the exile that we read about in 2 Kings. And some of these Jews began to tell these wise men about this baby boy who was going to be born and he was going to be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And of his peace, there will be no end. This is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 9. And if you were here on December 1st, you know that we preached on Isaiah chapter 9. If you missed the sermon, you can download it. It's, you can look at it later. But the point of that message, the point of Isaiah 9 is that there is this prince who's coming who's going to bring peace to all the land for he is the prince of peace. And the peace he brings is not a temporal peace. It's an everlasting peace. In fact, the Hebrew word there is shalom. It means peace, wholeness. Ultimately, it means salvation. Yes, worship. Worship of the prince of peace brings true peace. Worship brings peace. Of course, not just the worship of anything that's going to bring peace. These magi had been worshiping false gods and false idols for many years in their native land, and they did not have any peace. No, it's only in worshiping the Prince of Peace that they're going to find true peace. And because they were so hungry to find this peace, to experience this shalom that these Jews talked about, they were willing to travel and follow the star the 900 miles to Jerusalem and eventually to Bethlehem. You know, we can spend our lives chasing after, worshiping the the false idols of our culture, like money, success, sex, power, influence, popularity, prestige, but none of these things are going to give us lasting peace. I remember when I was in high school, you know, one of my goals as a teenage boy was to be the best high school basketball player my high school had ever seen. Ironically, I ended up playing with the best basketball player my high school had ever seen, but I, I, I tried hard to be the best. I used to remember playing three hours a day easily, and I would uh, go to summer basketball camps, you know, and I went, to, went as far as North Carolina and Chapel Hill to, to learn from the great Dean Smith on how to play basketball. You know, and I had some success on the basketball court, but no matter how much success I had, my peace was not found in my performance. 
Because as good as I might be one night, there was still a game next week that I would have to play, and, and that opponent, we'd have to beat them to make sure that we were still the best. Now, I never truly found peace in basketball until I began to give my basketball play to God, and I sought to see how I might bring glory to God in playing for Him. I remember my first year as a consultant with Price Waterhouse. My degree's in finance and economics, and I took a job with Price Waterhouses, which is a large accounting firm. I was placed on a, on a project that required a great deal of overtime, many hours. We would often work six days a week, 12, 14-hour days, and at the end of my year, my, my manager told me with great uh, celebration that, you know, you are in the top 1% of billable hours for a level one consultant. Good job, and he gave me a high five, and I was like, is that good? I don't know. I, I just really felt tired and worn out. I said, no, this is great. Here's this raise and here's this bonus and hey, we're gonna promote you and, and all these great accolades and yet I had no peace until I found a church home in Dallas called Highland Park Presbyterian Church and started worshiping there on Sundays. Yes, worship is what brings us peace. Worshiping Jesus, the Prince of Peace, brings ultimate peace. Worshiping Jesus brings peace. Can you say that with me? Worshiping Jesus brings peace. Why were these magi willing to travel so far? Because they were looking for peace. They wanted the peace that only Jesus could bring. The next time we find ourselves feeling anxious or overwhelmed by the demands of life, we need to stop what we're doing, we need to pause, we need to pray, and we need to worship God. You see, in worship, we turn our hearts and minds away from our current concerns and we turn them towards God because all worship is unto God. And, and so true worship is focused on God and God alone and, and ultimately it's focused on Jesus. And as we focus our hearts and minds on God and on Jesus, we can't help but have an attitude of gratitude. We can't help but have a great sense of thanksgiving as we thank God for all that he's done for us. Yes, on this Christmas, we're reminded of just how much God loves us. That even though we were sinners, as Murray pointed out, even though that all we like sheep had gone astray and we were all guilty of sin, God doesn't abandon us in our sin. No, God sends his one and only son here to this earth who was without sin to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. For he lived in perfect obedience to the moral law and then fulfilled the sacrificial law, all 613 commandments with his death on a cross as the perfect sacrifice. As the Apostle Paul explains, he who was without sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Yes, as Paul reminds us in Galatians and quoting Deuteronomy, cursed is he who is hung on a tree. Jesus became a curse for us with his death on a cross, paying the price for our sins, making peace with God so that we might be reconciled to God once and for all, so that we might have the peace that truly passes all understanding. If we want to have peace, we need to spend time worshiping Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Of course, private worship is great, and now with all the great praise music we have, you know, that's a, that's a wonderful thing to do. But if we read the scriptures, specifically the words of Jesus as they come to us in Matthew 18, we can see that Jesus tells us that when two or more are gathered together in his name, he promises to be there. If we want to experience Christ's presence in its fullness here today, we need to be one body together. And as we come together in Christ's name, we are reminded that 
Well, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and nothing could separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Yes, we need to gather and worship on Sunday because it was on a Sunday that Jesus rose again. It was on a Sunday that Jesus proved to be who he said he was when he conquered both sin and death on our behalf. It was on Sunday that Jesus proved that he was the great I am, the savior of the world, the one who's come to, to welcome all of us into his kingdom. If we will simply come to him in faith. Yes, we need to worship on Sunday because it's on Sunday that Jesus appeared to his disciples and his disciples, his faithful followers have been gathering for corporate worship on Sunday ever since. What effort are you willing to make to worship Jesus on Sunday? The Magi were willing to travel 900 plus miles to worship Jesus. What effort will we make in 2020? Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we're so grateful that you have made yourself known to us in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh who alone is worthy of our praise. And we're grateful, Lord, that as we gather together as one body in your name to worship the Prince of Peace, we experience your presence together and we're reminded of all that you've done for us, that you were willing to die for us so that we might have peace with God, so that we might be reconciled to God once and for all. Oh God, thank you for your great love. Help us to make the time, to make the effort, to do all that we can to worship you corporately together each and every Sunday, knowing that with Jesus' resurrection on that first Easter Sunday, it has become the day of our Lord, and we want to glorify and honor him each and every Sunday together. Oh Lord, thank you for your presence with us now. Continue to guide us as we seek to bring all glory and honor to you. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said,